Well, I just want to thank Braden for sharing that update with us about the mission team to uh, St. Louis. And I just want to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for a safe week and a safe return, but also for our Bible drillers. Man, I was just way impressed with these, these students that, that were able to memorize Scripture, be able to look it up and do it so quickly. And uh, what a blessing that is to see that in our body and, and in our young people. Um, we need more of that. And, um, but let me, let me offer a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Father, for these Bible drillers. And, and Father, I know they've, uh, they've come over one hoop, uh, one, one obstacle, and I'm, I know they're relieved that uh, the church drill is over. But I also pro- pray, Father, that you would just bless them as they move on to the associational drill and Father, that you would just continue to strengthen them and that they would continue to hide your word in their hearts. Uh, Father, I thank you for um, just the, the, the kingdom work that took place this week. Father, as these college students were ministering to other churches um, in the St. Louis area, I thank you for bringing um, all these campuses together, these students uh, that gave uh, their spring break to go and, and uh, minister and to edify and build up uh, the church, uh, Father, in St. Louis. So I, I pray, Father, that you would just bless them. I thank you for watching over them. I thank you for um, watching over them in all the construction, but also on the roads. And, and Father, just for having a safe trip. And Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. And I pray, Father, that even now as we look into your word, Father, that your Holy Spirit would challenge us and would guide us into all truth. And Father, I thank you so much for all that you do for us every day. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to start off this morning by saying that I love you. And... Um, don't groan. Don't say, oh, we know it's coming. Although it is. I just want to tell you that I love you. Because, you know, um, yesterday we, um, I did a funeral for one of our oldest members, um, Helen Overton. She was 97 years old. She'd been a member of our church for 72 years. I mean, that's some faithfulness there. That's just being willing to, to, to dive in with what God is doing and following Him. And what a blessing it is to know that she is with Jesus. And, and you know, it's, it, so I say that I love you because I do love you. And I want you to be there with us on that great wedding day. That wedding feast with Jesus and all of those that have gone before us. Folks, that is my heart. That is, that is my desire. You know, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and if you have your Bible and want to open up to that, um, you know, in almost every state of the Union, there are some laws on the books that just seem pretty absurd. You know, they're, they're kind of ridiculous. For instance, this. Did you know that in Florida, a woman can be fined for falling asleep under a hairdryer? Kind of a crazy law, huh? In Indiana, citizens are not allowed to attend a movie without, within four hours after eating garlic. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good law to me. Now, there's a place called, there's a city by the name of Normal, okay? Yeah, there's a, there's a city named Normal, Illinois. 
And it's against the law to make a face at a dog there. I mean, you might say, well, he started it, right? But, um, and it's probably a good thing that I'm not a pastor in Nicholas County, West Virginia, because no member of the clergy is allowed to tell jokes or humorous stories from the pulpit. I mean, I don't know if you can classify what I do as telling humorous stories. So um, we may laugh or groan because these seem absurd and ridiculous. But if there were a list of all the rules and expectations and bylaws that are on the books of our churches today, chances are we'd stop laughing pretty quickly. Because we recognize that there's lots of things that, that go into that. Many of these religious regulations, if you will, are not even written down. They're just expectations that have been carried over from one generation to the next. It's really confusing when you come into a place you may not know. There's the written law and then there's the unwritten law. Those that is the expectations of things that you may not even understand or know. But listen, our spiritual growth, our spiritual growth can be stunted, even choked out by the weeds of legalism. We can get caught in that, and, and, and it, it, before long, it, it just becomes second nature to us. And, and legalism could be defined as, what I want to say, as strict adherence to the law. Legalism. That's in a very general category, specifically as it relates to faith. A legalist is one who believes that performance is the way to gain favor with God. Legalism is the human attempt to prove our spirituality. By conforming outwardly to a list of do's and don'ts. I want to give you just a couple of observations before we get into our text. Observations about legalism. We tend to think others are legalistic, but that we are not. We say that person's legalistic or that person's legalistic, but, but we're never legalistic. You know, the fact is, is that we're all legalistic by nature. And here's what I mean by that. We tend to judge others by our own standards of what we believe is acceptable and what isn't. In essence, we think our sins smell better than someone else's sin. We have very little tolerance for people who sin differently than we do. See, I would say to you this morning that legalism is highly contagious. While it's usually less conscious and systematic in the minds in our minds than it was with the Pharisees. Legalism can spread like a bad virus through a congregation. And legalism can take a vibrant faith, one that's active and alive, and make it very dull and lifeless. I mean, legalism can just choke the life out of things. It can evaporate our enthusiasm. It can jettison our joy and stifle our spirituality. Instead of finding freedom through Christ, many believers are loaded down with a burden. See, legalism produces self-righteousness and judgment. And the reason is it majors on the guilt Misguided sacrifice. Legalism, it urges its followers to evaluate their relationship with God on the basis of standards and scores and expects others to do the same. And I want to say this, that shallow spirituality short circuits the work of grace. If we just want to keep it on a surface level, it's going to short circuit the work of grace. See, legalism makes us narrow and divisive. Because the legalist would say something like this. 
that, that everyone would, has to live up to the standard that, that they've adopted. If you don't live up to my standard, then, then, then that's, I'm being a legalist because I'm saying you have to measure up to what I believe is right. When we think this way, we miss the delight of the diversity in the church. Because all of a sudden, we're looking at people through our own lenses rather than God's lenses. I'm going somewhere with this. Legalism makes it impossible for people to see Jesus. See, there's nothing that pushes a non-believer away faster than a list of rules and regulations. I mean, some of us inadvertently portray Jesus as a, as a drill sergeant instead of a savior. That he's just hollering and yelling at us, don't do this or don't do that or do this and do this. Rather than him being a delightful savior that pulls us out of the mess that we're in and rescues us. And loves us. See, in answer to this kind of legalism, Jesus gave three short parables. And they're in all three of the synoptic gospels. We're in Mark 2 today. But it's also this same story is found in in Matthew uh, chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5. Of the three, the parable of the bridegroom and his friends has been largely neglected. And that's why I call this a minor parable. Because you don't hear very many sermons about this one. I want to begin reading in chapter 2 of Mark, verse 14. And um, I've kind of expanded it because I think it gives us a little bit more context than just the two verses of the parable. But let's begin in verse 14 of Mark chapter 2. It says, And, excuse me, as he passed by, he, this is Jesus, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he he was reclining at the table in his house. Jesus was reclining at the table in Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them... And they were following him. When the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And then here I want to focus in on verse 18, 19, and 20. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, why do his disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Do you understand just how radical 
this passage of Scripture is. Do you understand how radical Jesus is when he goes to the tax booth and tells Levi and actually calls him out and says, follow me? He's calling Levi, this tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed as the worst people in society. Because not only did they take uh, the money that the government wanted, they took money on top of that for themselves. And so they would, they would actually steal money from people legally. They had the power to do that. So they would take the money and they would steal money from people. People hated the tax collector. They couldn't get around them. And so what you see is you see Jesus calling as one of his disciples a tax collector. Someone that nobody wanted to hang out with. Somebody that nobody wanted to be associated with, especially a teacher in Jerusalem. So you have Levi, tax collector, probably got plenty of money, been stealing it for years. What does he do? Oh, Jesus wants to hang out with me. So he comes to his house. He throws a party. He invites all of his tax collector buddies. And they're there enjoying a meal together with Jesus. How can Jesus hang out with people who don't know God? How can he hang out with people and and, and fellowship with them? Folks, he's wanting them to know who God is. Matthew did, Levi did, what every single one of us should do is we should call all of our friends and invite them to come and see Jesus. See, we don't do that very often, even as believers. But we should. That's a whole nother sermon somewhere down the road. So after Jesus ate a meal, okay, with Levi and his friends, revealing a life that is punctuated with joyfulness, Instead of the grumbler reverence. I mean, sometimes as believers, we can be the most downcast people we know. We walk around with a sourpuss, as my mom and dad used to call it. You know, down in the dumps, no smile on our face. Act like we've been um, weaned on, you know, green persimmons. They'll draw your face up where you just don't want to smile. And so the question was asked, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? See, in this parable, Jesus revealed the lifestyle of those in the kingdom of God. Those in the kingdom of God, it was to be different from the lifestyle of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were walking around in Jerusalem, and and they were the epitome, if you will. They were the picture of what it meant to be a godly person. Everyone looked at them as like they were godly. They, they belonged to God. They were it. And so they, they, they looked at them in that way. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God looks differently than the way you think it looks. What you're seeing is not the way the kingdom of God is. This is a false picture of what the, 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 the kingdom of God is like. Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. 
See, I believe that the difference can be reflected in three ways, and I want to give these to you this morning. The first one is liberty. The kingdom of God is a life of liberty. When you live life in the kingdom of God, it is, it is a life of liberty. And the, the, the paraphrase, my paraphrase of this question in verse 18 might be, Jesus, why are you so different? Why don't you fit into the mold? <laughs> People are always wanting to push you into a mold, aren't they? Push you into their mold. See, the religion of the Jews in Jesus' day was crusted over with customs which forced everyone into a common mold and an example was the matter of fasting the pharisees who fasted twice each week they felt like everyone else should too they condemned anyone who didn't fit into their mold and the Pharisees, when they would fast, they would whiten up their faces and they would put ashes on their head and they would wear disheveled garments and they wanted everyone to know that they were fasting. You know people that have that sad look on their face sometimes? You know, they're trying to be sad. They can sound so pitiful. That's really what they were doing. On the days that they would fast, they wanted everyone to know they were fasting. So that somebody would say, you know, come up to him and say, Oh, Brother Ridge, are you fasting today? You don't look well. Yes, I'm suffering for the Lord. They wanted that, that recognition. And they fasted twice a week. That's so no one would miss the fact that they were fasting. and So that everyone could see how devoted they were to God. See, by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had decreed that godly people fasted on Monday and Thursdays from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. all day long. If you were godly, then you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Most likely, this dinner hit on a Monday or a Thursday. And they're saying, hey, how come you're not fasting? John's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. How come your disciples aren't fasting? Well, you must not be godly. I'm going to grab this other mic before we have a problem here. I'm also not going to give the enemy the victory here. You know, the, the Pharisees, they would ask something like, well, isn't true spirituality... Isn't it when, uh, when it makes you do things you don't want to do or keeps you from doing things that you should be doing? And, you know, many people believe that today, that if you are spiritual, that it's going to keep you from doing those things or, or doing the things that you don't want to do. And there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. We like that because it takes the gray area out. It helps us to know, oh, this is black and white. You always know where you stand, and this helps reduce our anxiety. I want to tell you something. Nothing I have ever done in the kingdom of God has been comfortable for me. He always presses me to do something beyond who I am. And I'm very thankful for what God does in and through my life. When Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God... He announced that his purpose was to proclaim the release of the captives. And that those included those who were being held captive 
to the stifling strictures of tradition. I mean, Jesus came to set us free. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I love that. So you have liberty. Liberty. Life in the kingdom of God is a life of liberty. Freedom. Also love. Life in the kingdom of God is also a life of love. Another paraphrase of verse 18 might be, Jesus, why don't you follow the law? (laughs) See, the religion of Jesus' day was a religion of law. And it was legalism which approached life in a negative way. I mean, when Jesus came, he declared that God was not a lawyer who was rigid. He declared that God was like a father. That, there was a, that he was a father to be loved. I love that about Jesus, about his relationship with the Father and how he showed that to us. Because he showed us that we can have a, a living and lasting relationship to Father God. I mean, the basis of our relationship with God is not law, but it's love. It's love. Christianity is not a religion. It's not about a religion. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. We need to hear that because sometimes we want to reduce it down to the law to become legalist. But I want to encourage you in something this morning. You know, becoming a Christian is like entering into a marriage. I mean, I read out of Romans 7, verse 14. Excuse me, verse 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined together to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Joined together, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Jesus said, or God said, go be fruitful and multiply. I love that because it says, so that you might be joined together, joined to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. You know, two people aren't joined together just because they know each other. Two people aren't joined together in marriage just because they have strong feelings for each other. Two people are not... Married just because they live together. Two people are married when they commit themselves to each other and make this commitment known. In other words, this is usually done by saying, I do. I was talking with Tom Henderson, our director of missions, um, a couple of weeks ago, and and, uh, we were talking about uh, marriage in Texas. And he said, you know, Texas is one of the only states where you can do a marriage ceremony in five words. I said, what are you talking about? He said, all you have to do, you don't have to have any witnesses. It can be five words. You ask the man, the the groom, do you? And then you ask the bride, do you? And then he said, then all you got to say is done. Five words. Do you? Do you? Done. But marriage is something that it, when we say I do, it's because we've committed our life 
to that other person in front of other people and make it known. But listen, it's a lot like that with salvation. It's more than just knowing about Christ and making, having strong feelings for him. Salvation comes when we say, I do. So we have liberty, we have love, and we also have what I want to call laughter. Life in the kingdom of God is a life of joy. Another paraphrase for verse 18 might be, Jesus, why are you so happy? Why are you happy? I I might call Jesus the glad groom. You know, the Pharisees had literally squeezed all the joy out of religion. How come your disciples aren't sad like us? Jesus, why are they happy? Why are they enjoying themselves? You know, Irma Bombeck, she tells the time when she was sitting in church and there was a a small uh, child turned around and began to smile at people sitting behind her. (laughs) Not making a sound, just smiling ear to ear. And when the mother noticed it, she she said in a stage whisper, she said, stop that grinning, you're in church. Gave the little one a swat, said, that's better. And we serve a God of joy. He gives us tremendous joy. Jesus said that living in the kingdom of God is just like going to a wedding. Just like going to a wedding. You know, last weekend, Tracy and I attended... The wedding of a young man and lady had been a part of Memorial through his college experience, Tanner Wilson. Some of you know who I'm talking about. He came to church here, and and, um, I must say, I had a great time throughout that entire event from the moment we got there. I mean, there was lots of food. I mean, how's that a bad plan? There was music, there was dancing. There was joyous laughter as we sat and and visited with friends, catching up with other friends we hadn't seen in a while. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun just to be there. I I laughed, I laughed so hard during that, that wedding. And to see the joy and the excitement on the bride and groom's face. I think at one point, uh, after they got introduced to the, to the, the group, uh, Tanner let out a woo! But he was so excited. All of his friends were there to watch him commit his life to his love, Nikki. I mean, what a great time. What a great event. Jesus is saying living in the kingdom of God is like... Being in a wedding and being a part of it, it was so refreshing. And as long as the bride and groom are with you, you're having a good time. I mean, you're there. They invited you and you want to be there. I mean, nobody, come on, nobody throws cold water on a friendly bonfire. His kingdom is here. Living in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like going to a wedding. It's to be a life of joy. A life of excitement. A life of fulfillment. And Jesus was saying that things are different in the kingdom. In the kingdom of God. That the men of Jesus' day, they took faith and they wanted it to, to look more like a funeral. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not like a funeral. It's more like a wedding. 
The men of Jesus' day thought of God as being a harsh judge to fear. And Jesus said God was like a father that you can love. The men in Jesus' day thought of religion as fitting everyone into a mold. And Jesus said that following him was like being let out of a cage. What I'm about to say, I just want you to check yourself, okay? Just, just do a heart check here. I mean, you might be a Pharisee if you desire that everyone should regulate their godliness according to yours. You might be a Pharisee if you think Christianity is about r- rules rather than a relationship. You might be a Pharisee if you think any church that has experienced growth must be watering down the gospel. You might be a Pharisee if you accept only the King James Version as authorized because it's the version that Paul and Silas used. You might be a Pharisee if your sin seems so small when placed beside the really big sins of others. You might be a Pharisee if you rationalize that Christians who don't agree with you are all compromisers. You might be a Pharisee if you rehearse your virtues when you should be confessing your sin. You might be a Pharisee if your outward righteousness is more important than your heart holiness. You might be a Pharisee if you are insulted by the notion that you might be a Pharisee. How do I know these are true? Because I'm a recovering Pharisee. I mean, we read this passage and we recognize that Jesus is saying, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. They're going to be filled with joy. Notice the Messiah is not called the bridegroom in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Matthew 25, our Lord told the parable about the ten virgins waiting for the coming bridegroom who is designated there as the Lord in his return. So our Lord is simply saying, the Messiah is here. The Messiah has come. This is not a time to fast. It is a time to feast. It is completely inappropriate for Jesus' disciples to fast and moan while the long-awaited Messiah is present. He has come. He has arrived. And the fasting of the Pharisees, the fasting of John's disciples, that is what was out of place. That is what was out of touch because they didn't understand God's purpose in what God was doing when the reality of the Messiah was there standing in their midst. See, their religion was totally bankrupt. They were externalists pursuing a relationship with God through their own works rather than actually seeing what God was doing in front of them. They can't even recognize the Messiah. They think he's from Satan. They think that, he's, that, think that what he's espousing is a different religion, and it has to be stopped. They didn't get it at all. But he's the truth. He's the life. He's the only way to God. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And His disciples are celebrating. And they should celebrate. 
It's not a time to fast. It's a time to feast. Look at verse 20. I'm almost done. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. That really is a stunning statement. The days will come. There will be a time in the future when the wedding joy will end. To put it simply, the, the bridegroom will be taken away. And it won't be a ritual. It won't be a Monday, Thursday thing. It will be heartbreak and it will be grief. You know, today, I want you to know something. I've finished the book. Spoiler alert. One last reminder. On this side of the cross, there's going to be another feast. There's going to be another feast. And this time, we're no longer guests and friends of the bridegroom. Hallelujah. We are going to be the bride. We will finally be united with the one who died for us. There will be a wedding feast. My fear is that some of you may miss that because of your relationship with Jesus. It's not about church membership. It's not about what you give. It's not about doing good deeds. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about having Him as your Savior and Lord and inviting Him to come into your heart, about making Him the boss on the inside. Not about all this other stuff that we do on the outside. It's about knowing Him here. Here and here. And following Him. You see, when when we invite Him into our heart, the Holy Spirit comes and sets up shop within us. We have the Holy Spirit who abides in us. We are the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit and commissioned to proclaim to our world that Jesus saves. Quit worrying about what it looks like. Quit worrying about who gets the credit. Let's go out. And bring people to Jesus. So that we can realize a great harvest of souls right here, right now. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how your word challenges us in every way. Father, you set the appointments, you you bring the times, and Father, we know that your timing is perfect. Father, I pray that even now that your Holy Spirit would just show us the areas of our heart, the areas where we've given ground to the enemy. Father, where we've willingly turned our back, where we've willingly done things that don't agree with you or your word. I pray, Father, that you would bring about a great conviction upon us, a great repentance. God, that we would no longer confess our strength, but, Father, that we would confess your strength.
Father, that we would walk in the strength that the Holy Spirit provides. Holy Spirit, that you would free us to to share our testimony about how we have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ in each one of our lives. Father, whether we're 10 years old or 90, Father, or anywhere in between, God, that you would free us to share the love that we have, that we would show people that life in your kingdom is a life of liberty and of love and of laughter, of joy. And God, that we would look forward to that wedding feast, knowing that the, the time is short, knowing that the days are urgent. Father, that we would be content no longer just to sit idly and do nothing. But Father, that you would, by your Spirit, empower us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to our world around us. Father, I pray that you would put people up on our hearts. Father, that that we would have a burning desire to see our friends and neighbors and those even within our own homes and households come to know Jesus in a personal way. I pray, Father, that you would burn within our hearts a desire to share Christ with those who don't know him. Father, that you would transform this body into your witnesses. And God, that we would go forth in this world proclaiming the excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this morning there would be a great great anointing of your body. Father, that we would see what you desire for each one of us. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to do your will, to go where you lead us, to step out where you guide us, and Father, to testify about your greatness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Guide us as we continue to seek and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.